in my time, I've done about two and a half thousand commercials personally, and then 30 feature films, 200 productions. The amount to reshoot is comparatively speaking, in normal terms, even the overall comparison part of the budget, is, is not terrible. Particularly as we all came in and did it for nothing. That's, that's how supportive it was. Ridley Scott's upcoming drama, All the Money in the World, was to star Kevin Spacey. It's now headlined by Christopher Plummer, a last-minute switch that demanded last-minute reshoots in record time. Was it worth the effort? From Midori House in London, I'm Ben Rylan, and this is The Cinema Show. Also ahead... I'm just hoping it doesn't lead to everything being completely homogenised, though, so that the only style of blockbuster filmmaking we get is this kind of this uber style where everything has to be signed off. The mega deal between Disney and 21st Century Fox is big news in Hollywood business pages, but will it also affect the kind of movies we see on our cinema screens? And we have a film like Wolf Warrior 2 in China, which again has became one of the top five films of the year, and I think it's the first time that a Chinese film ends up in the top five. We'll look back at the highs and lows of this year's box office. That's all to come on The Cinema Show on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the final edition of The Cinema Show for 2017. Today we'll be looking at some of the stories and movies that we're likely to be chewing over in the year ahead. And of course, we couldn't farewell the year without looking at what's surely the biggest corporate shift the film industry has seen in decades. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Walt Disney recently held talks to buy some of 21st Century Fox's assets. It all started some weeks ago as whispers started to trickle in of a potential mega deal between Disney and Fox. They were, at least for a while, only rumors. Even Disney's own CEO, Bob Iger, thought it was all a bit of a long shot. And then... Breaking news, the blockbuster Disney deal, the parent company of ABC buying many of the assets of 21st Century Fox, creating an entertainment giant. Not only was it the biggest story of the day, it was also the entertainment story of the year. The studio already in charge of Star Wars, the Marvel superhero franchises, and the Disney classic titles, including 2017's biggest moneymaker, Beauty and the Beast, just got even bigger. From the office window of Disney's CEO, Bob Iger, it all made perfect sense. Rupert has managed over time to assemble just a stellar group of assets. So we're getting high quality content. We're getting global reach. But as Fox News cautiously pointed out to its viewers, the deal also shrinks Rupert Murdoch's media empire by a considerable margin. You have probably heard by now there are some major changes coming to the media landscape and to the Fox organization. You may be wondering how this all affects Fox News Channel. The Murdoch family would hold on to a more tightly focused news and sports company. Top-rated Fox News, Fox Business, the Fox Broadcast Network, Fox's local television stations, and Fox Sports. So why would the man many have called the last of the old world media tycoons put so many of his prize assets up for sale? 
Stephen Battaglio from the Los Angeles Times told CNBC that it all boiled down to the new war of the streaming platforms, a war that's so far been led by Netflix, Amazon, and in the US, Hulu. I think it would certainly be a transformative moment and an admission that how difficult the content business has become. If Rupert Murdoch is finding it so difficult that they're talking about giving up, it must be Would you really view it as difficult. giving up? I mean, would that be the right term? Well, I would say... Because we yeah. learned, I guess, that Disney approached Fox. It wasn't Lachlan and James Murdoch going, hey, you please buy this. To, you have to take the meeting. There's no question about it. But the fact that they would entertain that, that they would, they're giving up these crown jewels, says that Netflix is coming, Google is coming, Amazon is coming, and the price of entry is going to go up. For years, we've been hearing John Landgraf, the president of FX, talk about how the price of, of cast and, uh, and producers and writers has gone up because he's bidding against Netflix all the time and losing a lot. And that's exactly what Rupert Murdoch hinted at when he spoke to his friends at Fox News. People watch television differently, not news or, or, or business, but entertainment they watch very differently. We're seeing that with the emergence of new companies. Silicon Valley is now beginning to spend tens and tens of billions on entertainment programming. So he's taking his billions and stepping out of the movie-making game. But what next? They're going to go out and buy something. That's what they're going to do, Joe, is what I'm hearing. Not right away, but get this. They're probably going to be looking to buy a studio. While the Murdochs are plotting their next move, the soon-to-be supersized Disney will be enjoying an almost unchallenged dominance when it comes to blockbuster cinematic franchises. How will that affect what we watch? Well, Tim Roby is a man who sees lots of movies. He's a film critic at The Telegraph here in London. Now, he's actually already started his Christmas holidays, but we managed to track him down. Tim, does all this mean we'll be seeing more big blockbusters and, well, perhaps less small dramas? Well, I certainly hope that's not the case. It's difficult to say, although one thing that everyone's speculating about is how it will enable two companies to merge their superhero franchises because obviously, on the one hand, you've got Disney, which owns the Marvel universe. But then Fox have always had the rights over X-Men and Deadpool, for instance, who are characters who can now be brought in and merged completely with the Marvel universe so that we end up with a kind of massive multiverse involving all of these superheroes all doing whatever you want them to be doing. I'm not hugely excited about that, to be honest, because I feel as though we've sort of had enough of these mergers already in some ways. But it's certainly going to enable things to be less kind of, you're not going to have things ghettoized so that you can only have Deadpool and Deadpool or whatever. Obviously, I think this was beginning to happen already, but now it's just going to completely open the floodgates for that. I'm just hoping it doesn't lead to everything being completely homogenized, though, so that the only style of blockbuster filmmaking we get is this kind of uber style where everything has to be signed off which reminds me a little bit of the way things are going with the star wars universe where you know these directors are being hired and fired and kind of told to adhere to this house style and if they don't do so then they get thrown off and then someone else brought on who will just simply say yes to everything i don't really want things to head in that direction with all the big budget films that we ever see when you consider just how big disney could become now how difficult will it be for the other major studios to compete? Warner Brothers hasn't exactly set the world alight with its Justice League series of films. And of course, Universal's attempt at rebooting its monster movie universe has been a bit of a disaster. Sony has all but given up on its Spider-Man films. Who's left to compete on that blockbuster scale? I mean, it does put them way out ahead of the pack for sure. And you're really only looking at Warner Brothers and Sony will be the only ones kind of 
nipping at their heels in any way. I mean, Warner Brothers traditionally have always had the Harry Potter films and now the Fantastic Beasts, the continuation of that franchise. But it begins to seem slightly small fry next to the phenomenal success of the Marvel films, which Disney now have complete ownership on. And Sony uh, are struggling, I think, to come up with equivalents of their own, even though they've had their own go at things like Spider-Man over the years. I do think it kind of makes them into this uber corporation. I mean, the American antitrust laws are going to be coming into play here. And I think it's not totally been signed off because it's very possible that this is an unacceptable monopoly. I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Well, Tim, let's turn our attention now to some of the films we'll be looking at for 2018. We saw a new poster unveiled yesterday for the much-anticipated Isle of Dogs. What are your thoughts on this one? Yes, so this is Wes Anderson's first stop-motion animated film since Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is also a big success for him. And it has a very fun idea. We're set in a kind of dystopian future Japan in which all dogs are banished to an island because of an outbreak of canine flu. And it has many of the, the actors doing the voice work that you would associate already with Wes Anderson. You've got Bill Murray's in there, Edward Norton's in there. I think Brian Cranston voices the role of one of them as well. It's due to open the Berlin Film Festival this February, which was also the case with the Grand Budapest Hotel. They've got a good relationship with him, obviously, because he's a very good, high-profile name to have on your red carpet, especially if you can bring some of those actors along with him. I've seen the trailer, and it does look very, very kind of weird, quirky, and entertaining. Let's move along to another film that will actually hit cinemas just before the year's end, but no doubt will be reverberating into 2018 as well. That's The Post. Yes, this is one I've seen. This is Steven Spielberg's latest And it stars Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep in a kind of reconstruction of the Washington Post's groundbreaking decision in 1971 to break ranks and publish the Pentagon Papers, which massively discredited the Nixon administration in the middle of their Vietnam campaign. Essentially, the Washington Post had them. And it was a decision made between the then editor, Ben Bradley, which is Tom Hanks's character, and the paper's proprietor, Catherine Graham played by Meryl Streep, who was really a sort of socialite who'd inherited the paper after her husband's suicide. So she was suddenly put in the position of having to make this huge decision about whether to publish and be damned, because there was a possibility that the full force of the White House legal system would fall upon the paper and get them sort of banned and brought up before the Supreme Court and all these other things. So it was a kind of real epochal decision. And I think Spielberg has managed to make a film which deals with all that very well, while also speaking to today very clearly. I mean, it's very much a film about news and newspapers mattering. It's very much a film combating the idea of fake news. This was an instance where the news was real and it had to get out there. Finally, Tim, let's talk about All the Money in the World. Now, most of us will know this as the film that was intended to star Kevin Spacey, but for obvious reasons, he was replaced at the very, very last minute with Christopher Plummer. Spacey's extraordinary transformation had been pitched as one of the film's main attractions. Plummer, of course, has undergone no such radical makeup process. Do you think the film will survive? Well, in a way, I think that it's been Ridley Scott kind of turning things around with an extraordinary speed, for one thing. I mean, he managed to get this role recast, reshot, and a new trailer put out within the space of weeks. 
And the film has gained a lot of publicity from that. I think people didn't really know necessarily what this film was before this all happened. Maybe some people had seen the trailer and were aware of Spacey's role as Getty. But it's been far more widely discussed now that this has happened. And the early reports are that Christopher Plummer really comes up with the goods in this part. I mean, he's much more sensible in the role, actually, because he's much closer in age to Getty at that time, who I think was 81. Christopher Plummer's of 87. Spacey's in his late 50s, so they were massively aging him up to do it. And really, Scott also says that Christopher Plummer was his first choice to play the role, but that the studio wanted the bigger name of Spacey, so he had to kind of relent. And he's now got what he wanted after all, which sounds like kind of quite a, a neat PR spin on things. But it does look as though Christopher Plummer is the right man for the job. They've recut the trailer and re-emphasized his kind of role within it. Michelle Williams also really kind of has the main role as the mother of the kidnapped boy. And I mean, it's coming along all right, I think, for this film. It's received quite a lot of Golden Globe nominations, including for Plummer and Michelle Williams. And I think people are kind of excited to see whether Ridley Scott has pulled off this last minute switch. I didn't hire an ex-CIA officer just to pay people off. I hired you to do things that other people can't or won't do. We have to be willing to walk away. He's my son. I can't walk away. I don't think this is about money. Thanks to the film critic Tim Roby. Still to come, we'll round up this year's box office takings and we'll find out why films featuring a strong female lead aren't just about courting a female audience. But first, long-time listeners might recall a series of chapters we began receiving some time ago at the cinema show's desk from a rather disgruntled film critic toiling away in the basement office of a once mighty newspaper. Well, for our final show, we managed to dust off just one more edition. Memoirs of a Disgruntled Critic, Christmas Edition. W.C. Fields famously advised us never to work with children or animals, although I always preferred the affirmation of my old drinking buddy, Hector Antonioni, more talented brother of Michelangelo, who saw no meaningful distinction between children and animals and hunted both for sport. But whether you follow the mild advice of Fields or the more effective advice of Antonioni, one thing is for sure. Children ruin cinema. This is the biggest problem with that most problematic of genres, the Christmas film. Too often in the seasonal picture do we see the concerns and desires of children given pride of place. And this is an issue because the concerns and desires of children are nonsense. It's like my old squash partner, George Peppard, used to say. The day you start caring what children have to say is the day you pull your guts out through your nostrils. And he was as right about that as he was about the enjoyability of a plan coming together. If I wanted to see children have their wishes come true... I'd sell drugs outside a kindergarten. I don't need to see it on the big screen. Take Christmas favourite love, actually. Here was a script with plenty of potential for trenchant social critique, from its message that all marriages will eventually end in betrayal to the porn stand-in subplot that illustrates how romance in the 21st century is nothing but an obscene simulacrum of carnal passion. And yet, the movie, 
I hesitate to call it a film, squanders this potential by devoting large swathes of screen time to the petty whining of a deeply unpleasant child who seems driven only by the erroneous belief that the world owes him something. Even worse, he is encouraged in his entitlement by his father, who chooses to indulge his son's interminable squealing, rather than taking the opportunity to teach him the valuable life lesson that if your mother's dead, it's probably because she got sick of your nonsense. It reminds me of Home Alone, which I at first thought was a true classic of the Christmas genre. Here, at last, I said to myself, on first viewing Chris Columbus's opus, is a film that truly explores the dark heart of the average child and sounds an unambiguous warning that we must preemptively restrain and sedate our children before their evil fantasies are unleashed in the physical world. Imagine my dismay, then, when I found that the rest of the cinema-going world was of the opinion that the child in Home Alone was the hero of the piece, that his demented rampage was something to be cheered, and that Macaulay Culkin, who had given what I believe to be a virtuoso performance of cold sociopathy far superior to the later overrated hamming of Anthony Hopkins, was, to use their own detestable term, cute. What can one do in the face of a viewing public so oblivious to meaning and truth? As Jean-Paul Belmondo told me late one night in an abandoned pancake restaurant, the public is the rectum of God. There was a time I didn't know what he meant, but I got his meaning perfectly well when I saw A Christmas Story, the stomach-turning tale of a boy who wishes to massacre his family with a rifle and engages in a campaign of covert psychological warfare to ensure he gets his way. And that is the heart of all Christmas films, is it not? The children must get their way. We must not deny them the hollow fruits of capitalism that their withered souls crave lest we be scolded by Santa Claus and subjected to the depraved manipulations of his elf slaves. In the film Arthur Christmas, the titular cretin wastes vast resources and upsets the smooth running of a multi-billion dollar operation just to get a bicycle to a single little girl who, as far as we know, has done nothing to deserve it. What happened to the good old days of It's a Wonderful Life when Christmas movies were about suicide and children knew their place? Alas, today their place is everywhere. And at Christmas we feel more than ever the tyranny of juvenilia crushing us beneath its holly-bedecked boot. Our thanks and best wishes for a happy Christmas to that anonymous critic. We do hope to finally see his memoirs published soon. Now, anyone who's found themselves scrolling through Netflix will no doubt have stumbled upon the genre known as films featuring a strong female lead. Surely, in today's modern world, having a female protagonist shouldn't necessitate its own genre. Well, alas, according to a study by Dr. Martha Lausen at San Diego's State University, women accounted for just 12% of the leading roles in the top-grossing films of 2014. 
Now, of course, after a year that saw Wonder Woman conquer the multiplex, and with an all-female reboot of the Ocean's Eleven film series set for next year, things might be looking up, but the question still begs answering. What is a strong female lead, and why, in 2018, should that matter? You obviously have little regard for womanhood. You must learn respect. I think there's a certain type of actress who seems that they gravitate to those kinds of roles. That's Brian Mullen. He, along with co-host Sean McGovern, host the podcast Broad Appeal. Those kinds of roles where women are decisive, they're the focus of the story, their choices are driving the action. Weirdly, I think probably you had more of those kinds of films, probably in eras like the 1940s. You think of like the Betty Davises, the Barbara Stanwyck's, the Joan Crawfords. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. And probably the paucity of those films on Netflix is a you know result of the fact of like where Netflix is drawing their movies from. Do you know what I mean? Even if Kate Hudson is the lead of a film, I don't know that she's a strong female lead because a strong female lead probably has to have some kind of agency that's not about finding a man, but it's about, you know, facing some kind of complex emotional choices and allowing kind of women who have a whole range of emotions and contradictions. Of course, that's not to say that Kate Hudson could not or has not been the strong protagonist of a film. Ultimately, a film is the result of many hundreds of people all working together behind the scenes. And in an industry so often ruled by straight white men, portrayals of women aren't always, well, shall we say, on point. Consider the quite problematic female characterizations seen in the festive favorite, Love Actually, or the terrifying conclusion to Greece, among many, many others. I guess you could also ask, like, who is the audience? You know, the audience in, in the 40s was predominantly female because obviously a lot of men were off fighting in the war and women were on the home front. So I think they catered to, you know, they turned out in droves to see Betty and Joan and all of those actresses and they wanted them to be the center of stories. I do think that nowadays with the movies that seem to be getting made, there is this new drive to cater towards, at least in like major Hollywood filmmaking, right? Like the teenage boy audience, you know, or the the kind of overgrown teenage boys. And that's why we get all these superhero movies. But there's still, I think, a hardcore set of fans who will turn out to see real stories of human emotions and that have women in the central roles. I mean, All About Eve is interesting. Like, one of our favorite movies from the last couple of years was The Clouds of Sils Maria with Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart. And, I mean, that movie is sort of a weird, like, kind of remake of All About Eve in a, in a Euro context because it's showing these... It, the central relationship is between two women with their attractions and their jealousies, and it's dealing with, you know, the positives and negatives of femininity, their, their, their um, jealousies, the fear of aging, her talent, her neuroses. Complaints about Hollywood's depiction of women are almost as old as the film industry itself. But as the writer Hadley Freeman says, 
there have been many exceptions along the way. Hadley is the author of Life Moves Pretty Fast, a book detailing her love of cinema of the 1980s that also functions as an excellent study of how cinema has so dramatically changed in the decades since. Here, she explains why a filmmaker like John Hughes would probably find it very difficult to work in today's industry. Those movies were all mid-budget movies, so they weren't, you know, the cheapo indies and they weren't the big superhero films. They're in the middle. And those are the movies that aren't made by studios anymore. And that's why we now have this very weird system with movies where you get these really interesting indie films or art house films or foreign films. But then mainly what we get is huge superhero movies from DC and Marvel because movies are now made to play all around the world, whereas in the 80s they were marketed just mainly to America. A Hollywood movies takings in um, the 80s was 80% America, 20% the rest of the world. Now that's flipped. And on the one hand, you can say it's great that America is aware of the rest of the world. But on the other hand, it means that they're getting rid of things like dialogue, because dialogue is too hard to translate for the Chinese market. They're getting rid of the specificity. It's crucial, right? It's, I know. And that's why it's so superhero now, because it's all special effects. They don't need to worry about things like dialogue, whereas something like Ferris or, you know, When Harry Met Sally is all dialogue. And it gets rid of the specificity, which is one of the main things of John Hughes's films. They're very much about American suburban kids living in the 80s and often lower middle class. I mean, Ferris is not. Ferris is the exception. His other movies are all about lower middle class kids trying to get by in a world that favors upper middle class kids. Some Kind of Wonderful and Pretty in Pink are the most obvious examples of that. That just would not happen today in a Hollywood movie. Those movies are all made by Paramount. And while... John Hughes might have been able to work in a more indie market, get something made on the kind of smaller studio like Stars in Their Eyes were, like, which is another recent teen film. But it would not have had the big release. They would not have had the big releases that they had then. By today's definition, a film such as 1989's Steel Magnolias would be seen as a quintessential women's picture, a term often applied dismissively to a genre that seemed to find its golden age in the 1950s with the superb films of Douglas Sirk. Like Hadley, Sean also sees today's simplistic movie marketing as an obstacle to the inclusion of strong female-led films. There is an awful lot of emphasis placed on the teenage boy market. I mean, major studios are completely bankrolled by Marvel pictures, superhero pictures, DC whatever, whichever iteration and characters they can resurrect from their back catalogue. I mean, I think both of us are actually quite optimistic about the types of films that certain actresses get to play these days. Um, and if you look at smaller distributors like A24, which really made its name uh, this year especially because it distributed Moonlight, it, it also uh, was the film that um, supported... Um, 20th Century Women, which was a film we both adored last year, which was egregiously overlooked uh, by the Academy because I think they realised that their uh, their money was on Moonlight and not the Annette Benning film. Uh, and if you look at this year's contenders for the Oscars and for the awards, you can see A24 uh, behind Lady Bird with uh, my countrywoman Saoirse Ronan, who we both adore. Um, so I think the fact is is that there are roles out there and there are certain women um, whom audiences respond to. It's just that we are bludgeoned to death by this marketing campaign 
by Disney remaking every single animation they ever had by all the Marvel Studios that actresses don't get the certain kind of airtime that they deserve when in fact if you just look at the numbers and you look at the films that are being made and if you look speculatively at the films that are probably going to get um, awards nominations this year the categories of actress and supporting actress are completely overcrowded because there's so many good quality roles and talent out there to fit in. Well, if there's anything that Hollywood history can teach today's industry, it's that only a fool would treat their audience as another fool. Audiences have always flocked to see good, strong women on screen. From the box office reign of Clara Bow and Lillian Gish, to Doris Day, Demi Moore, Julia Roberts, and Jennifer Lawrence. And those so-called women's pictures have often proved to be some of the most enduring screen classics, treasured by everyone. After one of the stormiest years the entertainment industry has ever seen, surely one of the lessons to be learned is that there are many, many stories out there that ought to be told. My thanks to Brian Mullen and Sean McGovern. You can catch their podcast, Broad Appeal, on iTunes. In a moment, Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco takes us through the year's box office. But first, a word from the news desk. The final lineup for this year's Sundance Film Festival has been unveiled. Among the star attractions is a retrospective dedicated to the modern great Todd Haynes. There's also You Were Never Really Here from director Lynn Ramsey, who took away the award for Best Screenplay at this year's Cannes Film Festival. And one juror who's sure to attract more than his fair share of attention will be RuPaul. The host of the Drag Queen Talent Quest, RuPaul's Drag Race, will serve as the sole judge of the festival's next Innovator Award. And there'll be a special 10th anniversary panel event dedicated to the enormously successful television series. And Mubi is shining a spotlight this week on the anime maestro, Satoshi Kon, with two standout features, Paprika from 2006 and Tokyo Grandfathers from 2003. Mubi is the home of cult, classic and award-winning films. Sample a whole month for free. Head over to mubi.com slash monocle. That's M-U-B-I slash monocle. We are just moments away from farewelling another year of cinema and joining me right now to make sense of the box office is Monocle's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, let's start with the trends. One very interesting trend this year is the rise of horror. I think it, it became such a big trend. Of course, horror is a general, you know, is relatively cheap to make. But this year there's been so films that were so profitable. You have the classic example of Get Out, which is, you know, some people might not say it's not a proper horror. There's some elements of comedy, you know, like a social critique there. But in the end, it is a horror film. There are a lot of very, very big horror films that aren't necessarily completely horror, that are very, very comedic. Scream, of course, is very comedic. If you don't take it too seriously, it almost plays like a, a comedy quite often, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and another classic example is It, the Stephen King adaptation, which ended up in the top 10 biggest box offices of the year. And that's quite rare for a horror film because they do well, but, you know, they're relatively small 
and they, they, they never end up on the top 10. So I think I see the rise of horror. And of course, Ben, you, you very much like superheroes. We see finally a superhero film doing very, very well in the box office, and that's uh, Wonder Woman. Yes, um, uh, this, the gestation for this film was more than 20 years, really. It's, it's so fantastic to see it come to the big screen in such a rapturous way as well. But uh, it hasn't necessarily at least initially hasn't had too much impact on the wider comic book superhero film genre. When you saw the profits and the reviews coming in for that film, were you, what were your initial thoughts? Did you th- see it as a turning point for cinema more generally? Yeah, well, I have to be honest, I was very sceptical in the beginning to see, you know, we had examples of, of Catwoman, you know, of, of, of those amazing female superheroes you know, in a way, when they go to the big screen, for some reason it doesn't work, the audience doesn't connect. But I think this was definitely a turning point. And of course, with the, all these cases of the hashtag Me Too, all these sexual scandals in Hollywood, I think it was a good film to see that people are interested in female leads and female directors. That's the most important of them all. And I think this this has been becoming a very interesting trend of the year as well. You have Lady Bird by Greta Gerwig and, and so many other examples uh, this year. Because before you just had the talk and female director. I think that was not the case in 2017. Mm, absolutely. I think a lot of people would have gone along to see Wonder Woman without even realising, or without even, not necessarily realising, but without necessarily feeling conscious that they were seeing a female-led film done by a female director. You know, This was the time where the film got to be just, it's just a superhero film that just happens to be batting up there above everyone else with two women at the helm. And Ben, talking about female leads, let's not forget the number one film of the box office this year also has a female lead. It's The Beauty and the Beast, which is, of course, another Disney live-action film. And again, those guys, as you mentioned in the show before, they would dominate the world in a way. And they did $1.26 billion in the box office. So oh, that's an astonishing number, isn't it? It is an astonishing number. But in a way, I'm glad that it was The Beauty and the Beast and not The Fate of the Furious that was the number one film of the year. <laughs> it was close, though. It was very close. Now, that's incredible to think about, really, on its own, isn't it? Because, I mean, let's look at a Disney classic being remade, Beauty and the Beast. No one's going to be too surprised to find that this absolutely renowned classic being remade in such style is going to do very, very well. It's going to attract a lot of people. But there's this other film series, The Fate of the Furious, that it's it's still doing well. Why is it still doing well? Well, the example of The Fate of the Furious is the international audience, you know. It's a film that plays to the world. It doesn't play only to the, to the US. There's an interesting characteristic here, Ben, that 81% of the whole you know, box office of the film was made overseas outside the US. That's a huge number. It's usually 60-40, but this case, you know, I think they were playing for an international audience. And, you know, talking about international audiences, another surprise, we have a film like Wolf Warrior 2 in China, which again was, became one of the top five films of the year. And I think it's the first time that a Chinese film ended up in the top five. So, you know, even though there's been some stories here and there saying that, you know, the Chinese box office was going through a little bit of some some problem times. But, well, you know, just, the audience over there has turned out to be a little bit more fickle than I think a lot of Hollywood producers had envisioned. Perhaps the American audiences are a little bit more predictable when it comes to what films will do well and what won't. But uh, China certainly has not been the easy plane sailing mission that a lot of producers were hoping for, I think. 
Absolutely. And uh, so overall, Ben, a very good year for film. And if I may add, you know, want to know what's my favorite film of the year? Oh, I'm, I, I couldn't, I could not possibly guess. Tell it me. is Call Me By Your Name. I just absolutely adore this film so much. Get Out is very close, I have to say. But Call Me By Your Name is, is very emotional. I hope he wins lots of awards. Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco, our very own box office weather watcher. Thank you very much. And that is indeed all we have time for this week. And it brings us to the end of 2017 as well. It has been a pleasure and privilege bringing you the best of the movie business every single week here on Monocle 24. Monocle will, of course, continue to keep an eye and an ear on the screen. Be sure to catch the Monocle Arts Review every Friday. Memoirs of a Disgruntled Critic is written by Ben Pobji and performed by Barney Burnham. My thanks to our editor, Christy Evans, and our researcher, Yolene Goffan. I'm Ben Ryland. You've been listening to The Cinema Show. Thank you very much, and happy Christmas. <laughs>